Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. of campaigning it is almost over not quite there are still polls closing and uh, there are still votes being counted but uh, this is going to be an incredible four hours of election analysis and believe it or not and i know this will come as a great relief to a good many of you for the next four hours i am going to speak less than i ever have on almost any program that i've done i am going to largely be a facilitator of conversation for the next four hours you're going to be hearing from hard-boiled veterans of the political process and the governmental process people who've run campaigns people that have won elections people that have lost elections folks that have studied them written about them we're going to give you an opportunity to ask questions of them as well. You can call in 800-848-9222. There are two things that I want you to keep in mind, not only in the next four hours, but over the next 24 hours, the next two years. One is after tomorrow, whether your candidates won, whether they lost, all of the folks who voted differently than you are, and I know this may sound a little bit like a cliche, but it happens to be true, they're all still Americans. They're still your neighbors, and you shouldn't view them as enemies to be destroyed, but people that you work with, people that you see at the gym, people that you go to the grocery store with. And if we continue, if you view them as enemies to be destroyed, if we continue down this path of hyper-tribalism, the country's going to be in a bad place. The other thing to keep in mind is that if you're on the winning side or the losing side tomorrow, we're all still facing a huge problem with inflation. People are still having a tough time paying their bills. We still have a huge problem with violent crime. We're losing more people every year to drug overdoses than we did in the entire Vietnam War. And while children in China aspire to be astronauts, American children who are falling farther and farther behind They're aspiring to be social media influencers. We're also getting closer and closer to nuclear war with Russia, by the way. These problems are very real and need solutions. So wherever you fall politically, let's work together to find some solutions. Lastly, I know a lot of you listen to this show for subjects that have nothing to do with politics. You might listen for aliens or movie reviews or discussions about the workplace or assassination conspiracy theories or stories about my 11-month-old son or debates about whether to use a top sheet when you go to bed or not. If you fall into that category, I'm just asking that you bear with us today. Stick around with us. We're going to have some great content. You may even learn something and come back tomorrow. Now, we're going to begin uh, the program with three distinguished gentlemen who know politics far better than I do, although there's a long list of people that fit that description. I want to welcome uh, my colleague at WABC in New York, the host of... Uh, the Anthony Weiner show slash in the middle, the co-host of Left Right and the host of the Keys to the City podcast on the Red Apple Podcast Network, former Democratic Congressman Anthony Weiner. Hello, Congressman. How are you? So is this this is it, the beginning of campaign 2024? That's, is that what we're doing now? It, that's <laughs> it. At least we can skip 2023. <laughs> also want to welcome a longtime friend of mine, attorney, former Republican state assemblyman from New York City, longtime uh, Republican state assemblyman from New York City, Bob Sterneri. Bob, it's great to see you. And uh, I also want to welcome Dr. Frank Sorrentino, award-winning political science professor and the author of several books, including Presidential Power and the American Political System. Dr. Sorrentino, it's great to see you. 
It's great to be with you, Frank. Uh, let me begin with uh, the news out of the governor's race. We're here in New York. A lot of the audience is in New York. And there's some races that are being called all over the country. We're going to bring people the latest. But I want to get your reaction to this. Here was uh, Governor Kathy Hochul yesterday as part of her uh, victory lap. We'll build a state where families can afford to raise their children. We'll create good-paying jobs from Long Island to the city, the Hudson Valley, the North Country, all the way to Buffalo and the Southern Tier. We'll do all that, creating good-paying jobs. We'll also give everyone what they deserve, safe, affordable housing, because that's one of their rights. And to make sure that all of our kids will succeed in school and achieve their full potential and live in communities without fear have the safety to walk the streets and take our subways without illegal guns on our streets. And this will become a place, this is a place where fundamental rights are protected and women can make their own decisions about their bodies. This is a race that seemed like it was uh, going to be awfully lopsided. And then the last month or two, we kept hearing about how tight the race was and how it was tightening and how it looked like Zeldin had a chance of pulling out a major upset. Kathy Hochul, the first elected female governor in the history of New York State, she's going to Albany for the next four years. Uh, Let me go to Bob Stranieri, who spent 24 years in Albany as an elected official more than that as a staffer. Bob, your reaction uh, to the governor's race in New York, did you expect well, it to re- be tight? Realistically, I think we should not be surprised given the strength of the Democratic vote that comes out of the city of New York. In fact, there's no city in any state that so dominates a state as New York City does in New York State. And the demographics of the city have changed. The exodus out of people from our city and from our state certainly has hurt the getting people to vote on the Republican line. And I think that was evident today in the kind of vote that Lee Zeldin did not get in New York City. I think he did very well in the suburbs. He did very well upstate. I mean, it looks like we are electing a Republican congresspeople in the Hudson Valley, in upstate New York, out on Long Island. Looks like we've picked up assembly seats. So I think Lee had strong coattails in Republican areas that are really going to help us you know, rebuild the Republican Party and give us a meaningful minority status in the legislature that has been absent for quite a while. Congressman Weiner, I was listening to you on the radio last weekend. You had predicted Hochul by 10. Looks like even you uh, had uh, underestimated Hochul's electoral strength in this election. What's your reaction to this uh, gubernatorial race? Yeah, this is a brutal time to be an incumbent. It, and it was a kind of a perfect storm for Republicans in New York State. And I think Zeldin wildly underperformed. I mean, here's one way to look at it. Chuck Schumer beat Joe Pinion, who spent no money, had very little visibility against a guy who's been in the Senate for a long time, arguably the most popular elected official in New York State. Joe Pinion got 43 percent. Zeldin, with all that money and all that hype, got 47 percent. Wow. So one way to look at it is as bad as it was for Democrats, what it was really kind of a repudiation – of the type of candidate that Zeldin was. He was not like Pataki. He chose to run as kind of a real bedrock, hard-right Republican, a Trump anti-abortion Republican. I think what we learned is that there are some states, and New York is one of them, where just the numbers are just impossible to overcome, that if you want to do it, you have to run like a Stranary kind of Pataki kind of Republican who understands there are a lot of Democrats whose arm will fall off if they try voting Republican. But this was a, a rough year. I think we now have the baseline vote for, um, for, for, for Democrats, meaning this is as bad as it's going to get. And I think Kathy Hochul, if she does run again in four years, will have now four years to get, it, to get some experience under her. Um, but one way to look at this is to do the counterfactual. Like what would happen if they nominated – if the Republicans nominated someone who maybe was going to get all those Republican votes – was going to still do the issue of crime, but maybe took the edge off of some of the other things that's, that so many Democrats were animated by. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Sorrentino, uh, you've studied elections and government for a long, long time. Uh, given the numbers that we're seeing out of New York, is, is electing a Republican statewide just a thing of the past? I think uh, this year offered the best opportunity. And for them to fail and fail as uh, deeply as they did, 
uh, is certainly disappointing, not only for this year, but for the future. Uh, I think we had a great out-migration of a lot of quasi-conservative moderates uh, to other states, and that was also very critical. But I think with Zeldin, perhaps uh, his association with the anti-abortion, while clearly uh, not disqualifying, I think in New York that became uh, one of the few states in which – it made a difference. Lee Zeldin spoke about uh, an hour and a half ago. This is what he said as the, as he did not concede. He did give a little bit of a, a rah-rah speech to his supporters, mentioned that the oh, there was an open bar, which scores him a lot of points in my book. Here was Congressman Zeldin. So, listen, it's, uh, it's been a battle where we've been focused on ideals. We've been bringing our message without apology or regret. Uh, we came to this with... Uh, passion to have a a debate of ideas for a better direction for New York, and we're still totally uh, committed towards seeing it through. Uh, for the 1.4 million election day voters who have not yet had their vote ca- cast and counted, uh, we hope that uh, as these results come in, that uh, we'll be able to prevail. Bob, uh, as the Republican in the room, do you think that um, Lee Zeldin should have conceded? Is he being a little bit of a sore loser by not giving a gracious concession? No, I don't think so at this point in time. All the votes have not been counted. He wants to see what the final numbers will be. Uh, I think we have some very close races around the state that are dependent on the votes that are yet to be there. As I said, we could be picking up five or six congressional seats Mm. in New York alone, which would be a tremendous achievement. And I think that, in part, reflects the strength of how well Lee ran outside of the city of New York. But even here in the city, looks like we picked up some assembly seats in Republican areas, which is very encouraging, and that hasn't happened in a long, long time. A couple of the other races we're watching, NBC News is calling uh, the uh, U.S. Senate race in Pennsylvania for uh, John Fetterman. Uh, He is going to be speaking any minute. We're going to bring that to you live. Meantime, uh, a guy that has had a long day today, I've seen him just about on every reputable radio and TV station there is, is Hank Scheinkoff, veteran Democratic consultant, political science professor, and crisis communications expert. Hank, um, what's your analysis of the results that we're seeing in this election, both uh, in New York and nationally? Well, in New York, look, we need balance, and it's good that Zeldin ran the kind of campaign he did. He got he ran the campaign, really, that uh, took a hold in the last month. It was uh, kind of boring before that, and he made the local people wake up. They had a lot more money, they had a lot more time, a lot more resources, and uh, as a result of Lee Zeldin's efforts, I think four assembly members alone got, got taken out tonight. There is uh, more balance in the state Senate as a function of his his effort. Uh, congressional seats uh, were lost by the Democrats. I mean, if that's the measure, then we then people want bipartisan government in New York State. Oh, Lee Zeldin, a great debt of gratitude. Nationally, the great victor tonight is Joe Biden because the disaster that was supposed to happen didn't happen. Um, And frankly, he looks like uh, he wasn't such a bad fellow after all. And that's an objective standpoint from an objective standpoint. Hey, Hank, it's uh, it's Anthony Weiner. Good to hear your voice. I mean, uh, the the other side of that coin is this is a tough night for Trump. I mean, again, if you consider that perhaps some of the chosen candidates in some of these races were a little bit more likable, a little bit less to the fringe, this could have been with all the with all the fundamentals at play, this should have been a much better night for Republicans in the U.S. Senate, at least. And then the House looks like it's going to be a handful of votes. I mean, I, I think that I think Trump might want to look at this night and be, not be too happy. Well, Trump is probably the reason why the Republicans did not. First of all, I hope you're doing great. But Trump is probably the reason why the Republicans did not do as well as they should have done in an off year and you know, an off year election. Number one. Number two, the the you know. DeSantis is the worst thing that Trump could ever happen to Trump. DeSantis has now made Florida into a uh, no longer a swing state, but a red state. And uh, with tremendous popularity, the capacity to raise an extraordinary amount of money and potentially the capacity to roll up the entire South. So that if I were Donald Trump, that's what I'd be worrying about. But his presence cost the Republicans greatly tonight. No question about that. Well, I certainly uh, think that Trump's 
involvement in the primary selection of candidates hurt the Republican Party. This happened in Arizona. Uh, we, we were able to prevail in Ohio, but it was much closer than it should have been. Uh, the situation in Georgia, again, very close race, shouldn't have been. We would have had a very good opportunity to win in New Hampshire if we had the right candidate. Didn't happen. And Trump also amassed about $100 million in campaign contributions that he apparently did not invest in his own candidate. So I don't think it was a good night for Donald Trump. Uh, my concern right along was that he was going to get actively involved in campaigns and further erode the vote for Republicans. What we saw in August when the Mar-a-Lago situation uh, dominated the news, there was no focus for an entire month on the issues that were going to drive the Republican agenda in this uh, campaign. And as he kept quiet, at least for the last couple of days, uh, we were able to see a return to people uh, responding to crime, responding to inflation, responding to the economy and the issues that Republicans were advancing. But I think the election shows how difficult it is to defeat incumbents who are well-funded. And there was considerably more money for Democratic candidates and Democratic incumbents than the Republican candidates could possibly raise. Let me get Hank's reaction because I promised him we'd let him go to bed at a reasonable hour. What do you you think of uh, Bob's comments, Hank? I think Bob's very smart, but I think it's a lot more simple than that. Donald Trump cost the Republicans an awful lot tonight. It wouldn't have matter who had more money. And in a midterm election, this should have been a much it should have been a much cleaner hit. I worked for Bill Clinton. I worked for a lot of other people. You know, in those midterm elections, extraordinary things happen. You know, this may be the best performance in 20 years for a party that was in power. Donald Trump is the villain of this story. He's the villain of he's the excuse me. He is the villain of the story. If I'm a Republican and if I'm someone who believes in, in bipartisan government that functions and when there's some balance, he's doubly the villain. Uh, Dr. He's responsible for this. No one else. Dr. Sorrentino, uh, any questions for your fellow Ph.D., Hank Scheinko? Uh, yeah, I think we have to look at uh, the whole corporate structure of America where they have moved more into the Democratic Party in their circles. And uh, they now provide enormous money. Uh, they not only directly, but through their not-for-profits, we used to call it dark money. And uh, I think in many instances we'll find that uh, the Democrat had maybe three times as much money, sometimes more than that, to, to run these elections. I think Dr. Sarantino, that's what happens when you control the majorities of the chambers. You tend to be able to raise more money. As to dark money the le- and the Republicans and Democrats getting more of it, last time I looked, the Koch brothers were not Democrats. Hank, uh, the, guys, the, the guys, the guys for whom the uh, the Citizens United decision got made weren't Democrats. Hank, that's not that's not fair. Yeah. Uh, you have done a yeoman's job today. We're going to go live to Pennsylvania to uh, hear John Fetterman's victory speech. Thank you so much for the time. Great job. Thank you for having me on. All the best. Thank you. Uh, here is John Fetterman, the senator elect from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It saved my life, and it should all be there for you when you ever should need it. Standing up to corporate greed, making more things right here in America and right here in Pennsylvania, and standing up for our democracy. Twenty years ago, I came to Braddock to start a GED program, and I've spent these last two decades fighting for the forgotten communities, because no community deserves to be left behind. No one deserves to be abandoned, and every place matters. And I want to again, I want to thank all of you amazing supporters, all of you, and all watching and every year. We bet on the people of Pennsylvania, and you didn't let us down. And my promise to all of you is I will never let you down. 
Thank you, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. That is the senator-elect uh, John Fetterman. Uh, looks like uh, that may very well uh, tip control of the U.S. Senate from the Demo- from what was projected by many to be a Republican majority to a Democratic uh, majority. Uh, Congressman, there was a lot made of uh, Fetterman being too extreme from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, unlike uh, Connor Lamb. A lot made of uh, his unorthodox campaign style, the hoodie and so forth. But uh, I think the most conversation about the Pennsylvania Senate race was about Fetterman's health and that debate performance, which uh, I think anybody charitably would describe as very poor. Any surprise uh, that he pulled it out here in Pennsylvania? Well, this is another issue that was on the ballot today was the quality of polling that we had seen. There was really two universes of polling. One was by the professional institutional pollers, and there was a lot of cheap polling going on. And frankly, by the time that debate happened, the margin had closed considerably. At that point, Oz was only down by about three points. And it reminds you of something. You know, when you watch moments like that in a debate, as, as much of it was a struggle for Fetterman, Oz was so slick, was so well put together, was so smooth, he never was a relatable candidate. And it was another example that I think if the Republicans had chosen a different candidate from Oz – then I think um, they would have won that race. Uh, One of the things that we saw in that race is that uh, Oz was largely portrayed as a carpetbagger, not really a Pennsylvanian, but a New Jerseyan. Bob, I I know towards the end of your tenure in uh, in Staten Island politics, a lot of your political adversaries tried to portray you as not really living on Staten Island. Now, it turned out not to be true, but I'm sure that played a a role in terms of, uh, you know, your last election. Do you think that is one of the things that hurt Dr. Oz? No, no, I don't. Let's remember, Hillary Clinton came into New York never having lived in the state, and she got elected to the United States Senate. So I don't think that's an issue that really resonates uh, with with the public. I think one of the factors that we are not uh, giving enough consideration to is the early voting in Pennsylvania. And the early voting was substantial and took place before the debate. So many people had already cast their vote, and we know – uh, the pattern is that Democrats tend to vote earlier or independents voting earlier and Republicans vote on Election Day. So I think that was another factor, especially when you look at how close the race was. Also, it was a very brutal primary. Oz only won that primary by less than a thousand votes. And that left a lot of scars with a lot of Republicans who were unhappy with Oz as a candidate. Uh, but I think Anthony is right. I think a, a, another candidate uh, might have been stronger under the circumstances. Uh, and uh, certainly uh, uh, some of Oz's commercials just absolutely baffled me uh, early well, on. You, 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 you know, Simon, we are going to be here for several hours talking about this, and there's a tendency to want to make narratives places. One narrative might be that nothing happened. In 2020, Pennsylvania went for the Democrats by a narrow margin, goes for a, Dem- for a Democrat today. In 2020, Florida went for the Republicans. It went for Florida today. Mm. In 2020, Arizona went for the Democrats. It may narrowly go today. You know, we have this tendency to try to take a 5149 thing and say, well, let's make a big narrative out of it. It's a coin toss. That's the way the country is. That's the way some of these states are. And as we saw in Ohio, we convinced ourselves, okay, maybe this red state is going to be purple. No, usually what is, is. In Wisconsin, you know, Johnson, we couldn't imagine how he would get reelected. All we had to do was look at the numbers in Wisconsin. Everett did get elected there. So maybe that's the example of a weird state. But for the most part, this is going according to chalk, as we say in the horse race business. And uh, we, it looks like we're probably heading towards a runoff in the state of Georgia. It doesn't look like either Herschel Walker or Warnock uh, will achieve the magic 50 percent number. And I have to think, Dr. Sorrentino, that that is going to be the most costly Senate election maybe in history uh, because of what could potentially be at stake there. Absolutely. Uh, what you're going to see is money from all over the country. And that's one of the things that has basically changed in a tremendous level. Uh, most of these races are funded uh, on the coast. They're funded uh, by these corporations, by these uh, not-for-profits, stock money. I think uh, we're going to see maybe another $100 million at least in this uh, runoff. And if it turns out that it's going to be the difference We don't know what's happening in in Arizona or Nevada yet, Uh, but if it's the difference maker, uh, 
all hell uh, could break loose. We're going to see what happens. It's going to be interesting. By the way, if there are results, uh, we're going to bring it uh, throughout the course of the program. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll take your calls throughout the hour as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Any uh, problems with voting irregularities, we're going to explore that with Isaac Saul a little bit later and uh, a whole lot of other stuff that's, uh, that you're in store for for the next few hours. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We are analyzing yesterday's elections. In studio, uh, joining me is uh, Democrat Anthony Weiner, Republican Bob Schneri, and uh, political science professor Dr. Frank Sorrentino. Uh, Control of the House and the Senate hangs in the balance. It appears the Republicans have indeed won control of the House of Representatives. It appears the Senate is still very much uh, up for grabs. We're keeping an eye on a lot of these uh, these races. You know, it's interesting what uh, Hank Scheinkoff said earlier is that uh, Donald Trump didn't do the Republicans any favors here. I do, uh, I do take note that there are some red districts that have become a lot redder, and I'm wondering if the Trump factor played a role in increasing enthusiasm in some of those communities. Bob, I'm seeing, for instance, the uh, district that you ran for Congress in, Nicole Maliotakis, looks like she's won with over 60% of the vote. I have to think at least a portion of that is due to increased enthusiasm about Donald Trump. I, I think that in certain districts, such as Staten Island and, and red districts, uh, Donald Trump probably does attract uh, a, a stronger Republican turnout. But you've got to balance that off against the people who are alienated by him, which we saw clearly in, in 2020. And I'm not sure it has improved to today. I think he, again, uh, his, he was a disruptive factor as far as I'm concerned, because he injected himself into Republican primaries. And, and the result was weaker candidates were selected than those who might have had a much better chance of winning, including elected officials who were seeking nominations for the Senate. And what do you think, Dr. Sorrentino, you've studied the role of kind of uh, separation of powers, the relationship that the executive branch has with the legislature, and you've certainly written about that. What do you think governing looks like for the next two years if it's a Democratic president, as will be the case, and a narrow Republican majority in the House and either a tied Senate as it is now or a narrow Republican majority in the Senate? Does that drive both parties closer to bipartisanship or does that cause both parties to dig in their heels a bit further? Well, that's the great question. Uh, We certainly know that the stock market tends to do better under divided government, at least historically. We've seen the S&P go up on average about 17 percent after a midterm election. But I think the real problem is, is that the parties have become much more centralized. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was able to put almost anything she wanted through uh, on a straight party line. And I think uh, Kevin McCarthy may be able to do the same thing. All the money that comes from the speaker and the speaker's committees uh, tend to dominate. Any individual member of Congress fears that they may be primaried or that somebody else will uh, uh, not get the their resources that they need. And I think uh, we now have a situation where we don't get moderates in the same way, we get more uh, ideologically extreme candidates. That's an interesting point, and one that I want to follow up with all of you on that. But, Anthony Weiner, you served in the House under uh, being with the Democrats serving in the majority and in the minority. What do you think governing looks like for the next two years? Well, if past this prologue, the Republicans are going to have a very hard time. I mean, there's a fundamental difference between congressional Republicans and Democrats, and that Democrats are to a large degree have agenda of things they want to do. 
That's the whole nature of being progressive is that you think you can make progress through passing laws. And what we saw after the Tea Party and what McCarthy is going to learn now is there's a substantial core in his caucus that don't want to do anything. They just want to drive the place into a complete standstill because they think government is the enemy. The Marjorie Taylor Greens, well, the Matt yeah. Gaetzes, and the I Warren wanted, Boberts. Correct. And there's enough of them. If you are going to – you know, I, I predicted this weekend on, on my show, The Middle, that they would have a 20-seat major, majority, which means 10 people. 10 people switch votes and you're done. And so I think McCarthy is going to have a tough time even surviving as speaker, let alone getting stuff done. And a, a third thing to, 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 to keep in mind is they have said when they talk about their agenda for the next term, it's things like do a bunch of investigations. Those things are fundamentally not conducive to making coalition around. If you're going to do months and months of hearings about Hunter Biden and they, they, they're going to be controlling the House, they can do it. I'm not sure there are many Democrats that get up in the morning and say, hey, I want, I want to go compromise with those guys. They seem like they want to get stuff done. So I think it's going to be a very difficult time. And it's going to lead ultimately to four more years of Joe Biden because Joe Biden is then going to campaign against a do-nothing Congress. And that's a time-worn um, strategy to getting reelected. Uh, Bob, what do you think this portends for 2024? What does this mean for the likelihood of a Biden run, which most experts I, that I talked to didn't think was likely? And what do you think it means for the likelihood of uh, Trump being able to waltz into the Republican nomination, which even just a few months ago seemed like a certainty? Well, I don't think Trump is waltzing into the Republican nomination. I think Governor DeSantis had a very strong night and a terrific performance. When you look at how he increased his numbers from four years ago, from just winning by less than 50,000 votes to uh, carrying almost uh, the entire state of Florida. And uh, so I think he is, can be a very strong contender, and we have others. I, I think that uh, many Republicans want to see us have a different candidate in 2024. And I think most Democrats would like to see a candidate other than Joe Biden. I'm not even sure Biden will finish this term, given the issues that are obvious to everybody who observes the man. Uh, yes, uh, I think it will be very difficult for Congress to accomplish very much. But the agenda is usually moved by a president for which now the Republicans in the House will be able to, in fact, veto uh, any of the programs that are not going to be attractive to Republican voters and uh, the Republican uh, conference. Bob, you know, and, and I am loath to start campaign 2024. I said it a moment ago, only half kidding. I'm really not enthusiastic about it. But let's try this thought experiment. Iowa is a month from now, and Donald Trump gets into the – says, I want to I be the nominee again. There's nobody that beats him. Nobody. And if DeSantis gets in, that probably means one or two other people may get in. In that case, you're certainly going to have Trump. And the same way with Joe Biden. I think the one thing our parties agree upon is we don't like our likely nominees for 2024. But Joe Biden, on the other hand, makes the following argument. There's only one person on this stage or one person in this country that's beaten Donald Trump, and it's me, and I can do it again. And we just saw turnout and votes and tallies that mirrored what happened two years ago. We're stuck with these two candidates whose collective age is going to be 190 or whatever it is by the time they run. I just can't imagine as a Democrat watching how the Republican Party is dominated right now. If Donald Trump decides he wants to be the nominee, then anyone's going to stop him. All right. Well, one of the things we're watching. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Breaking News. All right. In Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer is being declared the winner in the governor's race there. Democrat Gretchen Whitmer has defeated uh, Tudor Dixon. And in Utah, another race uh, that we were watching, it looks like Republican Mike Lee has uh, defeated uh, independent Evan McMullen, who was running uh, with the support of the Democrats as well. So as of now, it looks like there are 47 Democrats uh, in the Senate, 47 Republicans in the Senate with six seats still left to be decided. We're going to keep an eye on uh, on all of that. Uh, Dr. Sorrentino, do you want to follow up on what Anthony said? There? Uh, yes, I think uh, the problem uh, with Trump and the Republicans is that if Trump decides he wants the nomination, he's going to go for it. DeSantis may be the consensus among the secondary uh, members of the party and may think that he may be even a more effective candidate where you get a lot of the Trumpian policies without the personality. But I think Trump has the ability to kill any Republican nominee, and that's the critical aspect. If Trump says, I want this, he could destroy the Republican chances. He may not be able to get DeSantis uh, 
even if he's able, DeSantis able to wrangle the, the nomination, mm. uh, I think Trump could even run as an independent. And he could be that destructive. All right. We're going to continue uh, with uh, Frank Sorrentino, Bob Stranieri, and Anthony Weiner in a moment. We're also going to check in with uh, reporter Isaac Saul in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to take your calls. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We are in full post-election analysis mode, joined in studio by Bob Stranieri, Anthony Weiner, and Dr. Frank Sorrentino. It is interesting. One of the narratives that seems to be taking shape is that uh, Donald Trump did not help the GOP. And uh, a couple of people have uh, mentioned that J.D. Vance, who won in Ohio, um, did not mention Donald Trump during his victory speech. He specifically named 34 people for thanks or gratitude and uh, former President Trump, who campaigned there for him and who had a big rally in Ohio designed to help him, he was not one of the people that uh, that J.D. Vance mentioned. The other thing that I'm taking note of is the role of independence. In the last, uh, Amy Walter from the Cook Political Report, she tweeted that in the last four midterm elections, the party out of power has won independent voters by double digits. According to the exit polls, the Democrats only won independence this time around by one percentage point. So that could uh, play a role in explaining why things are so close. All right. Well, a lot of people have been very patiently holding. We have a good group of experts here. If you have questions, this is a good group to ask them, too. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Joe in Manhattan. Hello, Joe. Hi there, uh, everyone. Uh I have a question, by the way, regarding uh, abortion, etc. Now, my question is that why the Republicans insist on abortion instead of simply letting uh, families, each and every family, you know, decide insofar as uh, bearing children, etc., all right. Uh, Joe, let me get everybody to weigh in. Recommendations. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Bob, uh, what role do you think abortion and the recent Supreme Court decision did play in these the results? I think really? the people who were really motivated with abortion being their top issue for voting were never going to vote Republican anyway. You know, let's, let's remember the abortion law in New York was actually passed by a Republican legislature with a Republican governor uh, in the early 70s. There was a Republican Supreme Court that the first decided Roe versus Wade, and it was Republican uh, Supreme Court that upheld uh, the right uh, for abortion for 50 years until this recent court decision, which just sent it back to the states. And I think Lee Zeldin handled the issue the right way. The governor of New York State was not going to be in a position to dictate a change in the abortion law of New York, which some of us might call infanticide, the way it is now uh, structured. Uh, Dr. Sorrentino, what role do you think abortion played here? I think it played a major role, uh, primarily because it disqualified certain people. And uh, while Lee Zeldin, I think, handled it as best he can because he has a past, he has a record. Uh, But uh, for many, many people in New York, I think uh, being pro-life. Well, not just in New York, but around the country. Around the country. I think it meant a, a difference in a lot of different states as well. Uh, the Republicans, if they had stayed with Roe v. Wade in terms of a position, of, let's say the 12 weeks as the dominant view in the country, and comparative to what most Western European countries have, uh, but I think the absolute ban on abortion was very, very difficult to overcome in an increasingly secular society. Anthony, uh, putting aside the merits of the abortion issue, politically, uh, what role did it play here? Bob says it was de minimis. De minimis. Frank says it was substantial. You're the, the tiebreaker here, I guess. In well, the it, it's, it's axiomatic that the out party does better in midterm elections. But who's the out party now? A lot of Democrats felt that they were the out party because the, the Supreme Court strikes down gun laws, strikes down um, a woman's right to choose. So what it did is it animated so many Democrats that at the by the time we got to the polls today, I bet you when all is said and done, I bet you turnout was roughly the same, Democrat and Republican. 
And that makes it kind of like a presidential year. And that's not good for Republicans. Republicans have done well in midterm elections because they're more educated, more animated voters. I think what the abortion argument, uh, the, the abortion decision did is it, is it motivated a lot of Democrats to the polls. And let me make a point about the, the, the Zeldin walking this tightrope. You can watch Lee Zeldin in the primary he had against Andrew Giuliani and against these other guys. He mentioned six ways he would change the state law around abortion. Then he wins the nomination, says, oh, I don't really mean it. I meant another thing. I didn't really mean that thing. The problem is that when you deal with issues like that, that are visceral, that are about someone's very rights, it really is not just a policy thing that people are willing to overlook. So I I think the the choice – listen, we know that in Kansas a referendum was passed around it. We know that in upstate New York midterm – off-year elections were held, that it was the big issue. I see no reason to believe that when all is said and done today, it wasn't a a big reason why Democrats held their own. I want to bring in uh, Isaac Saul, who writes a uh, terrific political newsletter called The Tangle, which I subscribe to. And uh, it sort of uh, exploded um, disputing claims about election fraud. One by one, it would tweet uh, different – disproofs of uh, some of the things that people were raising about the 2020 elections. Isaac uh, joining us now live from uh, New Mexico. Isaac, are we seeing – the supporters of any of the losing candidates this time around raise that specter of the election was rigged or there were irregularities that are playing a role in the outcome? You know, surprisingly, no, actually. Um, I, 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 heading into the race, there was some chatter that I saw from campaigns like Kerry Lake in Arizona and, you know, Dr. Mehmet Oz a little bit in Pennsylvania sort of beating around the bush a little bit that maybe if they didn't win, you know, the only way they would fall would be because of this kind of nefarious activity. And we had some weird stuff in Maricopa earlier today. Uh, Some tabulation machines were down. Apparently some election workers got locked out by entering an inaccurate security passcode. And so there were some long lines there, but that seems to have all gotten sorted. And I've been keeping an eye out for stuff and honestly have not seen much of it, which you know, I think it's just kind of a product of how shocking some of the results we're seeing are. I think there's a lot of sort of infighting and people sort of looking around jaws agape because, you know, four or five hours ago, we were expecting a big, big red wave. And that's not really been what has happened so far. Well, that is uh, that is for sure. That seems to be the key takeaway here is this is the red wave that wasn't Uh, for people wanting uh, paying close attention to the U.S. Senate. Looks like right now the Democrats have at least 48 seats. The Republicans have at least 47 seats, five more seats yet to be determined. A lot of the states that we're watching, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, those are still close to still too close to call um any other key takeaways isaac uh, one of the things i love about your newsletter is you always start any given issue you explore with what the left is saying what the right is saying and then you give your take any other key takeaways that the mainstream press is missing at this juncture well look i mean i think one big thing for me is that i think a lot of conservative republican polls were being thrown into the the kind of national polling averages that just weren't good. I mean, the the Trafalgar group, who is a lot of polling out there, have been off by eight to ten points in some of these governor races that we've seen called already. Um, you know, I've seen pollsters like from Real Clear Politics, which is a pretty even-handed, even sometimes kind of right-leaning pollster that averages out of the polls, just saying, you know, our, our averages were kind of corrupted based on the results that we're seeing. And so I think I think that's one big takeaway is that we are really worried about undercounting the kind of conservative pro-Trump vote. And I think maybe some of these polls actually ended up overcounting it, which accounts for some of the more surprising results we're seeing, like the House being pretty contested. And, you know, another big one is the the Trump endorsement and the power of the Trump endorsement. I mean, Dr. Oz was somebody who was not very popular among the Trump base, and Trump had to sell him in Pennsylvania and get him across the finish line in the primary, and he did. And he has clearly uh, taken a drubbing tonight to a very weak candidate, frankly. I mean, John Fetterman has a lot of roots in PA and I think was a fairly popular guy and a lot of more conservative counties, but obviously his health issues, you would think would have done a lot of damage to him late in the race. And the fact that, you know, we're, we're just after midnight and it's been called already is, is pretty shocking to me. And 
obviously uh, in Georgia, we'll see how Herschel Walker plays out. But, you know, the there there are a few Trump candidates in some very swing states and swing districts that have gone down tonight. And uh, I think that's going to be a big narrative tomorrow is who, who's got control of the Republican Party. Obviously, Ron DeSantis had a dominant night in Florida, and there's going to be a lot of talk about where Republicans should go in 2024. So that's certainly something I'm keeping an eye on. Hey, this is Anthony Weiner. It's, it's, I read some of your stuff as well. It's, uh, you do a great job. Let me just ask you about this notion about the, the polling error. You know, in some of the polls that got it the worst, it seems, tonight were the ones that made an effort to try to figure out what they did wrong last time and kind of overcompensated. Are we forever going to see any poll that includes Trump just to be something we should probably disregard, but still the state of polling isn't so bad when he's not on the ballot? I, you know, I really don't know how pollsters are going to course correct from here because they, they have a huge problem in that Republicans, conservatives are much just much less trusting. I mean, the social science on this is pretty clear. The results of, you know, how many people they get to answer phones in homes where registered Republicans live is pretty clear. They are just way less likely to pick up the phone from a number they don't recognize and certainly way less likely to stay on the phone and talk to somebody when they identify themselves as, you know, an NBC pollster. And so that's a big problem for counting the Trump vote, the the sort of Trumpist right wing vote. And then the other side of it, which, you know, I'm seeing some chatter about now that I think is a really interesting take is there's a, there's also a lot of under 30 voters who are just rejecting robocalls mm. outright and are not going to answer those texts, not going to answer those phone calls. And I think we missed a lot of that vote in this election. I mean, we saw images of long lines at colleges all across the country tonight. There's been a lot of chatter about some of the exit polls showing a, a higher than expected youth turnout, young vote turnout, you know, the 18 to 30 block. And those that that group is, you know, regardless of political affiliation, also much less likely to pick up a random call from their phone. Uh, and and so, you know, I don't know. I, I do not envy the position the pollsters are going to be in and the postmortems that are going to come after this, because it's just, you know, it's it's clearly something went wrong in 2016. And and they, they appear to have missed quite big. Mm. Uh, in this election as well. Isaac Saul, uh, if people want to subscribe to The Tangle or read it, um, uh, how can they uh, How can they do that? Uh, please, yes, go to readtangle.com. That's R-E-A-D-T-A-N-G-L-E.com. And yeah, like Frank said, every day we break down a big, hot political debate with views from the right and the left, and then my take. And I think we're one of the few places mm. offering some really balanced, informative, holistic right. political news. With, with out the notable there. exception of this radio program, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> That's th- right. Thank you, Isaac. Uh, we'll see you when you get back on the East Coast, okay? Appreciate it, Frank. Have a good night, man. Uh, thank you. If people just tuning in, uh, it looks like right now the Senate has 48 Democrats, 48 Republicans, still four seats up for grabs. Those seats, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. The House looks like there is 20, 219 Republicans. That is enough for a majority, not exactly a comfortable majority, at least 260 Demo- 216 Democrats. Bob, it looks like we probably won't know which party is controlling the Senate tonight. Is that fair to say? Uh I would think that would be the case because the the votes still have yet to be counted. But I think Wisconsin will be Republican in the end. I think Nevada will be Republican. And I think uh, this time when we have a runoff in Georgia in December, uh, the Republican candidate, Herschel Walker, is going to win. Uh, Dr. Sorrentino, if you were to pick the biggest surprise out of this election, what would it be? I, I think uh, New York to some degree. I mean, even though I uh, argued that uh, Hochul had a lot of advantages in terms of uh, resources, uh, use of government, uh, the $20 billion that she got from the American Rescue Plan, which helped to solidify things. But New York is an interesting uh, example because I think while it was always difficult for Zeldin to win – I didn't think it was going to be that much of a wipeout, and I think that's surprising. But I think also another surprise is uh, is Pennsylvania. Mm. Uh, I I think there is a lot of people believe that Oz had the momentum. Uh, when we look at uh, New Hampshire, 
A lot of people uh, thought that Baldock was a weak candidate, and of course the uh, Democrats were supporting Baldock, uh, but uh, he did have a surge, and he lost pretty badly. So I think uh, there are some uh, real significant surprises, uh, but I think uh, what we were talking about, the, the Trump endorsements, they weren't always the strongest of candidates, and then he didn't provide the money that they needed to have. Uh, Bob, you, you spent a couple of decades in Albany. I want to get your take on this before uh, you, you get out of here. You l- referenced the fact that the Republicans won a lot of seats within – Democratic seats within New York City. It looks like uh, your colleague for a couple of decades, Peter Abadi, could be heading down to defeat in Brooklyn. Looking like Assemblyman – Democratic Assemblyman uh, Stephen Simberowitz could be heading down for a defeat. A uh, number of other Senate and Assembly seats throughout the state have – gone from blue to red. Uh, we don't know for sure yet, but it looks like the supermajority in the state Senate will probably no longer be the case. What do you think that means for Albany for the next four years? Does that make a kind of what a lot of people would consider a radical left-wing uh, law like bail reform less likely to come down the pipe? I, I think it will provide another check on the Democratic overwhelming majority in both houses as well as the governor. You know, back in the day when uh, we had 52 Republicans, uh, we had a good working relationship with uh, the first uh, Governor Cuomo uh, because we were able to support him on uh, issues that uh, we thought he was right on. And and we were able to uh, prevent an override of any of his vetoes. So the Assembly Republican Conference was able to uh, exercise power that it might not otherwise have. So if we if we can get 52, 53, 54 assembly uh, Republicans, uh, that will give real power to the minority leader. Uh, Dr. Frank Sorrentino, any uh, closing thoughts from you? Uh, any key takeaways on this election uh, nationally, locally, whatever the case may be? Yeah, I think one of the things that we forget is that the Senate was uh, 35 people up for election. Uh, 21 were Republican seats. So it was always going to be a little difficult. Uh, I think they made it worse by the some of the candidates they chose and the lack of resources that they provided. Uh, but I think it was always a tougher slog than most people anticipated. Anthony Weiner, just kind of about a minute left here. Uh, you know, we're seeing very poor approval numbers for President Biden, a lot of concerns about the economy. Is there any way to view the fact that this wasn't a red wave as anything but a repudiation of, of Donald Trump? Yes. I mean, look, Trump was to some degree on the ballot because he chose to impose his will on some of these things. But this is still, look, this is a good night for Biden only because he didn't get swamped. Mm. And that's what we thought when we sat down. We're going to have Anthony Weiner stick around. Uh, Bob Stranary, Frank Sorrentino, thank you both. uh, And uh, we'll be calling upon you soon. You have questions. This is a good day to ask. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.